Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, as we continue our study of Genesis, coming closer and closer to the end of that book, is in Genesis 49, starting at verse 13, and then reading through verse 28. This is the word of the living God, as he gave to Moses to record infallibly this account of covenant history, and we pick up here in the middle of the prophetic statements that Jacob was making about his sons and the tribes that would be descending from them. So we read here the word of God, inspired by him and therefore inerrant, in Genesis 49 verses 13 through 28. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw the rest, that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose, he uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its exposition, and its hearing, so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in his sight. Last time we read the first 12 verses of Genesis 49, which contained Jacob's prophetic pronouncements about his four oldest sons and the tribes that would descend from them. And we noted especially the prediction of the Messiah, the one to whom the scepter and the ruler's staff belonged, who would come from the tribe of Judah. Similarly today, I want us to examine what the Lord revealed to and through Jacob about the remaining eight sons, and the tribes that would descend from them. And again, we'll see 
the faithfulness of God, as we'll briefly consider how these predictions were fulfilled in later history. And as we did last Sabbath, we'll note we'll also see how these uh, prophecies connect with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in particular, we will note that Christ is the stone that the builders rejected, but who became the chief cornerstone. And so while we don't uh, tend to follow liturgical calendars in RP churches, it does happen to be that today is, is Easter being celebrated by our brethren around the world. And uh, we, will, uh, we do note that that is a fitting thing to consider at such a time when we're thinking of the resurrection, or when many are thinking of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, we know that he was indeed the stone that the builders rejected, but having been raised up is shown to be the chief cornerstone. He is God's cornerstone for that temple, that house not made with hands, which he is building. Well, as in last week's sermon, our application will simply be, though, this morning, trust the Lord who has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's deal first with the predictions about the tribes of Israel, and then we'll address the connection of this scripture to Christ. Of Zebulun, Jacob's sixth son by Leah, he says in verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, he shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall adjoin Sidon. The phrase Zebulun shall dwell is a play on words. You'll notice that if you look into this, that uh, Jacob uses a lot of puns or a lot of plays on words uh, in this prophecy. Uh, Because uh, here, in this case, just as we saw last time with Judah, for example, he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Uh, Judah actually means praise. Here, Zebulun actually means dwelling. And if you see here, he says, Zebulun shall dwell. And then he speaks of where Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, and become a haven for ships, and this border would adjoin Sidon. Now, that might present a little bit of a problem for you. If you look at a a map of the lands allotted to the various tribes of Israel, and we have a pretty good idea of where that is, because the description of uh, where their borders went from one place to which uh, is quite clear in uh, the book of Joshua in particular. So if you look at a map that's accurately drawn based on those uh, statements in Scripture of where the borders of these tribes were, you'll notice that Zebulun is neither on on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea nor the Sea of Galilee. It's not on the shore of any sea. It's landlocked. It doesn't actually touch the border of Sidon either. Sidon was one of the great Phoenician cities. The Phoenicians are what we would call northern Canaanites. They lived north of the land of Canaan proper, as it was the land that was given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. <clears throat> Some will say, we'll see, the Bible must contain falsehood. It contains false prophecy. Somewhat humorously, uh, those same people who, the naysayers here who, who will always look for ways in which they think the Bible was wrong about something, also tend to believe that the book of Genesis wasn't actually written by Moses, wasn't written very far back at all. It was written, uh, compiled anyway, uh, more during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So we could ask, if that were true, 
why would Jews of later centuries who would, would have known perfectly well where the tribe of Zebulun had lived put these words in Jacob's mouth to make it look like he was a fool and wrong? Well, the answer is Jacob wasn't actually wrong, and nor was Genesis written so late. These words were fulfilled. These pronouncements Jacob makes about his son are like most prophecies in the Old Testament, poetry. And so we have to understand that uh, when we take the Bible literally, that doesn't mean that we take it literalistically, that we take it in a simplistic sense. We, we uh, understand that there are different types of literature, for example, in the Bible, and we have to take them in light of what kind of literature there are. So, they are, so if we see that uh, something is written down in poetry, we would understand it to be, see if you can follow this, poetic. And poetic language is symbolic. It's full of imagery that points to something else. So if we take it in an overly simplistic sense, we might miss what it is really saying. So just as we don't have to picture a literal scepter or ruler's staff being passed down from Judah through all the generations until it comes to King David and then on down to Jesus, but rather that the staff and the, the scepter there were speaking of ruling authority, that it was poetically symbolized by the image of a scepter and a staff, we would understand that those words about Judah were fulfilled poetically. So here also these words about Zebulun are going to be fulfilled poetically. Is there a way we can see that these words would have come true even if they don't seem to fit the lines we would draw on a map when we look at what lands were given to the tribe of Zebulun? And in fact, yes. And this would have been a, a really interesting poetic way to describe some things about the tribe of Zebulun in later centuries. Zebulun didn't literally, in a very simplistic sense, dwell by the sea, possessing a haven or a harbor for ships, nor did the tribe's lands border on Sidon directly. But the Sidonians and other maritime cultures maintained a road through the territory, went right through the middle of the territory of Zebulun. It linked northern ports like Tyre and Sidon, the major ports of the Phoenicians, with, the, with other southern ports on the Mediterranean coast, with the Sea of Galilee, with the lands on the other side of the Jordan River. And oftentimes the Sidonians, the Phoenicians, as they were known by the Greeks, which, by the way, just means the purple people. Uh, they were the people who made this purple dye. They were known for that. Um, the Sidonians claimed this road essentially as an extension of their own territory. So in that sense, Zebulun did border on Sidon because the, 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 uh, the border of Sidon went straight through the middle of their territory as the Sidonians saw it. The road was actually called the Way of the Sea and sometimes poetically referred to as the haven of ships. So even though Zebulun's territory was landlocked, literally on a map, the tribe could still poetically be said to be a haven of the sea in a way that you would never expect. This is one of the things that we often see in scriptures, that God gives a prediction for something through a prophet, and then the way it's fulfilled is in a way that most people would not have expected when they first heard that prophecy. Jacob, Jacob's words did come true. Of Issachar, 
his fifth son by Leah. So you notice he reversed the order there a little bit. Uh, the first four came in birth order, then he jumped to the sixth, and now he's going back to the fifth son that he had with Leah. Jacob says, Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. The term band of slaves there might be better translated as tributary slave or hired servant. As we read in places like Joshua 19 when Israel first settled the promised land, Issachar was allotted the rich lands between the Kishon and the Jordan rivers. It was a place that was known for its fertility, of, particularly of the fields for the crops. We find in the earlier chapters of Judges that rather than fight for that land, the tribes contended, that tribe contended itself rather, to be dominated by the Canaanites in the north of the land, particularly from the city of, of Hatzor, the city of Hazor. And that occurred until they stayed under that dominance until Deborah and her general Barak uh, led an army from the northern tribes to defeat the Canaanites in battle. And so they seemed to be content to be a hired servant, as it were, to bow themselves under that burden because the land they were in wasn't, uh, was too pleasant. They weren't going to risk its loss. Next, Jacob foretells of the tribe of Dan, of his son Dan by Bilhah. Dan shall judge his people. There's another play on words. We'll come to in a minute. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backwards. Dan literally means judge. And so we see another play on words here. Dan shall judge his people. The judge who greatly weakened the Philistines, Samson, was from the tribe of Dan. The tribe is described as a serpent by the way and a viper who bites at the horse's heels so that its rider falls backwards. Uh, we, if you read the account of how Samson dealt with the Philistines, he certainly caused them, in a manner of speaking, to fall backwards. Another way in which that was fulfilled was in the tribe's military prowess uh, later in history. A large contingent of the tribe of Dan simply gave up trying to take the land that was allotted to them in Joshua's day because the Philistines were just too strong. And so they migrated northwards. The book of Judges tells us about this as well. They migrated to the north of the territories that had been allotted to the tribes of Israel. And they came upon a peaceful people in the city of Laish and slaughtered the whole population and took the city for themselves. This was... By the way, not a good thing. The Bible is just reporting a fact of history, not that it's a good thing. They renamed that city Dan after their ancestor and after their tribe. Being the most northerly of Israelite settlements then made it the first line of defense against invaders because most of the invasions of Israel came from the north. That has a lot to do with the fact of, if you've ever seen a map of the ancient world, you know that what's known as the Fertile Crescent. So people didn't come straight from the east, and there aren't a lot of good places for ports on the, uh, on the western uh, 
border of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea, so not a lot of invasions came from that direction. Occasionally they had the Egyptians coming up from the south, but otherwise uh, every other invasion came from the north. And so Dan would be the first place where Israelites would make battle against their enemies who were invading. And they would attack the enemy forces as they marched into Israel. They would often harry them from the rear, And so they would be like a viper in the path, uh, biting the horse's heels as it comes by and causing the rider to fall. But we might also take note of a spiritual reason that many commentators, especially the ancient church fathers, uh, noted a comparison to a serpent or a viper for the tribe of Dan. Arguably more than any other tribe, Dan became associated with idolatry in its later history. In 1 Kings 12, 28 and 29, we read that the city of Dan actually became the center of idol worship, thanks to the king Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who didn't want people to be going down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and so he set up idols in Bethel and in Dan, saying that this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt, and told people to go and worship there. And so Dan became, the city of Dan became a center of idolatry. And the tribe became so connected with that kind of idolatry that, that many of the ancient church fathers believed that the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. That the final Antichrist, the man of sin, would come from the tribe of Dan. And they based that partly on the fact that the tribe is not even mentioned among the 12 tribes in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. So you get Levi included in the list, and Ephraim and Manasseh, one of them is called Joseph in that list, but, uh, so they don't even count Dan. Distress over that, over something like that, over the future apostasy of the tribe could be a reason that Jacob declares in verse 18 after talking about Dan, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. We'll come back to that verse in a bit here. Well, next we come to Gad, Jacob's son by Zilpah. Jacob says, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Boy, if we thought the plays on words were uh, interesting before this, here uh, he, he does it three times. The words troop, tramp, and triumph are all variants of the word gad in Hebrew. Gad occupied a land east of the Jordan, prone also to invasion, but the tribe mostly kept its territory secure, driving out its invaders, triumphing at last. So they were, they were constantly, in some sense, being tramped over by troops of invaders, not to mention that it was also a land through which many of the trade routes from, from Mesopotamia came through, so there were troops of traders coming through. But they were able to keep their tribal territory mostly secure until the days of the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And So certainly a troop tramped over them, but they triumphed. Asher was Jacob's other son by Zilpah, and he says, 
Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Asher possessed the rich plains along the Mediterranean coast from Mount Carmel northwards, all the way to the lands of Tyre and Sidon. The best bread and the best olive oil was said to have come from the tribe of Asher, from their lands. So that was what was used at the king's table. So they yielded royal dainties. Naphtali was Jacob's other son after Dan, who was born to Bilhah. He says, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. So Naphtali is is compared with graceful things. The grace of body, like a deer let loose. The grace of words. We have one example of that, certainly in the Old Testament, where Deborah the judge, who was from that tribe, sings her song in Judges chapter 5. That's an example of Naphtali's beautiful words for sure. We might also note that the majority of Jesus' ministry in Galilee actually took place in what had been the land belonging to the tribe of Naphtali. Beautiful words indeed. Jesus was not of the tribe of Naphtali, he was of the tribe of Judah, but certainly the words of our Lord were spoken much in the land of that tribe. And you can't find more beautiful words than the words of salvation in Christ Jesus. The bulk of Jacob's words, though, in this section are for his son Joseph. Kind of like he had a lot more to say about Judah in the first part of this prophecy. Here he has a lot more to say about Joseph, his beloved son, that firstborn of Rachel, his dear wife, uh, to whom Jacob had given this double portion of inheritance already, uh, dividing uh, Joseph into two tribes. This tribe of Joseph would become two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Jacob describes Joseph in verse 22 with words of fruitfulness. These are ways of sort of like saying he'll he'll bear a lot of fruit, especially in terms of descendants. He's going to have a lot of descendants. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well, his branches run over the walls. You can see this tree growing and growing and sticking its branches out over the wall, being fed by a well. Put together as one tribe, Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh would outnumber even the great tribe of Judah. As we find in Judges 13, 16, and 17, Manasseh is divided into two territories. One is east of the Sea of Galilee, the other is west of the Jordan. Uh, Ephraim would get the central hill country of the Promised Land. They would both be very powerful in central tribes. Just as Joseph was harassed by his brothers, that could be some of the language that that, uh, Jacob uses here. Archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. That uh, could be, in part, a reference simply to his brothers, again poetically, they didn't literally shoot arrows at him, but they certainly harassed him, but he was preserved by God. Uh, Similarly, in their history later on, Ephraim and Manasseh would see a great deal of warfare, but the Lord would secure them for many centuries. Starting in verse 23, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his Hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. 
Ephraim would actually become the leading tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel when the kingdom was divided in the days of Solomon's son Rehoboam. It was also the tribe from which Joshua had come in his day. Certainly a noteworthy military leader. Manasseh would be only slightly less powerful than the tribe of Ephraim. As Jacob says, by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you. We'll come back to that also, speaking of the shepherd, the stone of Israel, here in a few minutes. But Note the five references to the Lord there. Mighty God, literally it says, the, the mighty one of Jacob. Shepherd, stone of Israel, God of your father, the Almighty. These are all references to the Lord God. From him comes true blessing, Jacob says, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. So uh, great spiritual and earthly blessings, especially lots of descendants. We've already noted that Joseph uh, became two very large tribes. And if counted as one tribe, would have been the largest of the tribes of Israel. But Jacob says that his own blessings have been great also in these words. And he declares such blessings upon Joseph. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Now think of what a change of attitude in the last 17 years here for Jacob since he said to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And now he says, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. He goes on, they shall be on the head of Joseph. Those blessings that I have received are going to be on Joseph's head and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. And we certainly see again that those are very blessed tribes in the later history of Israel. Lastly, Jacob speaks of his youngest son, Rachel's second son, Benjamin, saying, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. That's basically a poetic way of pointing out that though the tribe would be smaller, it was a small tribe in population, it would be mighty in its military prowess. The judge Ehud, who liberated Israel, was from that tribe, as would later be their first king, King Saul. The Apostle Paul, incidentally, was also from the tribe of Benjamin. A different kind of might and prowess, a spiritual warfare for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Moses writes, All these were the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them, he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Uh, the way, depending on how we read that, Moses might simply be referring to the prophetic statements each as a blessing, or he might be saying that besides making these prophetic statements, he blessed each one. He gave a blessing. Because some of these prophetic statements don't sound like the, the most blessed thing. Like, I'm, I'm going to scatter you in, among your brothers. I'm going to disinherit you, Reuben. Uh, that sort of thing might not be seen as a blessing, though we did note how some of these things last time uh, end up being turned into blessings by the Lord. 
But let's go back now to verse 18. Jacob there says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And then verses, verse 24 in particular gives clues to the answer to that prayer. How is the Lord going to give Jacob that salvation that he has waited for? But as a prophet here, Jacob speaks of the shepherd and stone of Israel. The Hebrew is kind of awkward. It could simply be saying, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, in the name of the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Some will interpret it that way. Or, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from thence, from the shepherd, shall come the stone of Israel. But the most straightforward translation of the Hebrew yields pretty much what we have here in the New King James Version. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And so we would ask, from where? Well, a couple of answers might be possible, and both can be true in one sense or another. One is that from Joseph, Joseph himself had been put in a position by God to be a shepherd and a support for his family. So from the fact that he was... Uh, he was uh, hated by his brothers, came this turn of events in which Joseph became the head of the government under the Pharaoh of Egypt and was able to save his people. But more likely, we see that grammatically it would be from God comes the shepherd and stone of Israel. From the mighty one of Jacob, So from his heavenly throne, Jacob is declaring here, will come the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And in John 10 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. Hebrews 13 20 calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. From the Lord's throne comes the shepherd. 1 Peter 2.4 calls Jesus a living stone. Peter there refers to the fulfillment of Psalm 118 verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The answer to Jacob's cry in verse 18, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills that, who is God's answer to that cry of Jacob, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. He is the one who is the true shepherd. Of course, as David says, it's the Lord who is his people's shepherd, and here is the Lord himself come as a man to be the shepherd of his people. He is the stone which the builders rejected that became the chief cornerstone. He is the one who was despised and rejected and yet was vindicated in his resurrection and in that resurrection and thereafter has become the cornerstone whereby all things are aligned, the whole foundation upon which is built a house for God, his true temple, the house not made with hands but being made of the living stones of Christ's people. Ample evidence contained Uh, Just in these verses, especially as we compare to later historical statements in Scripture, shows that the Lord is faithful. He does indeed keep His promises. He's kept them most fully. 
through Jesus Christ, the shepherd and stone of Israel, who has fulfilled all of these predictions. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust the faithful God who has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the shepherd and the stone of Israel. Let's pray. The God of ages, we thank you that you have worked in history to fulfill your promises. And we give glory to Christ Jesus and pray that we may ever rest in him who is our shepherd, who is the stone that was rejected by the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. The one who gives salvation for which your people have waited so long. And we pray in his name. Amen.